This message is brought to you by Moira Pentecostal Church. We hope that it will encourage, challenge, and inspire you in your walk with God. Luke chapter 19. Chapter 19, reading verse 1 and following. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And then when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste, and he came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they complained, saying, he's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Here's a story that is familiar to I'm sure all of us since childhood. And there are many good things that we can say about it. Uh, We see here Zacchaeus' absolute determination to see Jesus. Nothing was going to get in his way. Not the crowds, not the multitude. He would find a way. He was so anxious to see Jesus. We see his boldness and his courage climbing a tree. Probably not easy for a man of small stature. We see his repentance and his restitution. He made restitution. Half my goods I give to the poor. It's always a good sign of true repentance when somebody is prepared, if necessary, to make restitution for their deeds. My late brother-in-law, who was a pastor, but previously had been a very, very... Uh, heavy alcoholic, uh, was on his deathbed when God raised him up and saved him, and uh, he became a pastor. But he said that uh, after the Lord saved him and the desire for drink completely left him, he said that it must have been three or four years even after that. He says, I was walking through a town, my, my hometown, he said, and I saw a man sitting in a car, and I instantly recognized him as a man that I had borrowed a tenor from years before and never gave it back, and had no intention of ever giving it back, because he says, that was my drinking days. But he says, the Lord convicted me. So I went over and knocked on his window, and he rolled it down, and he says, excuse me, you may not remember me, and he didn't. He says, but I borrowed a 10 pound from you one time, and I never gave it to you back, and I just want to make sure that you get that. And he took his wallet out and gave him a tenner, and says, thank you very much. (laughs) And he says, I walked away, And he says, that conviction that I had was gone. 
That's restitution. And here's a man who made restitution. So there's lots of good things we could say about the story. But I think the thing that, for me anyway, is most touching about the whole story is when Jesus stopped at the tree and looked up and said, Sikes. And at that moment, it must have come as a great shock to Sikes that Jesus actually knew his name. What would be the chances in a great multitude thronging and of all of the tax collectors in Israel at that time here is one and Jesus knew his name I want to talk to you tonight about the God who knows your name Jesus spoke his name and since he knew his name and he knew where he was he knew who he was who was he? a tax collector an extortioner a man who robbed his own people, a man who lined his own pockets of the backs of his own people for the Romans, for the hated Romans, the oppressors. You couldn't get any lower than this. No wonder he was despised. People would hate this man with a passion. If he walked down the street, people would cross on the other side. They'd probably spit as they walked past. Zacchaeus, come down. Today, I must abide at your house. What a shock that was for Zacchaeus, but it was a bigger shock for those who were listening. It was scandalous. But here is this preacher, this self-appointed Messiah. And what is he doing? He's inviting himself to the house of one of the most despised. He was a chief tax collector. One of the despised men in the whole region. Listen to what the Jews thought. Verse 7. By the way, when it says the Jews, it invariably is speaking about the religious establishment, not the ordinary man on the street. The religious establishment. Verse 7. But when they saw it, They all complain, saying, he has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. Shock, horror. Imagine. (laughs) Here was the holier than now religious Jews who, as far as they were concerned, the sinners were deserving of all hell they could get. Remember the one in the temple? He looked over and saw the tax collector, the public in standing, and he says, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I'm not like that fellow over there. And I tithe, and I do this, and I do that. And that fellow over there, that old tax collector, beating his chest, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Which one, Jesus said, do you think when I justify it? But that was their attitude. These should have been the men who should have been reaching out to the sinners, but they weren't. And they didn't want to. They wanted them to go to hell. But Jesus was called the friend of sinners, wasn't he? The fr- what a title, the friend of sinners. Here was the man who reached out to them. Verse 8 tells us what Zacchaeus thought. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I've given half my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restored fourfold. That shows us that there was a change of heart, a true Deep, profound change in this man's heart. 
for this man to instantly <coughs> relinquish this immediately shows what a marvelous change in the heart. And this is the wonderful thing that the gospel can do to anybody. No matter how low they have fallen or how deep in sin they are, the gospel can change a life, totally transform it instantly, completely and forever. So here's this man in repentance and in restitution. Verse 9 and 10 tells us what Jesus thought. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. <laughs> that wee man didn't understand that day when he climbed that tree that his life was about to change. That the one who knew his name was about to pass by and say, Sikaeth, come down. I'm coming to your house today. Isn't that a wonderful story? Isn't that a wonderful thing to see how Jesus, in the midst of all of that throng, knew that man's name? Boy, that got his attention, didn't it? You ever in a crowd and somebody shouts your name, maybe not at you, but it's your name? What do you do? You instantly look around, don't you? You instinctively turn because it's your name. You hear it. God knows your name. And the searching sinner and a seeking Savior soon meet, don't they? Nathaniel, in John chapter 1. These stories are all familiar, aren't they? Verse 43 of John 1, the following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael, said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Such was its reputation. And he lived there, so he knew his reputation. Any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit or no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. He saw Zacchaeus up a tree, and he saw Nathaniel under a tree. He knows where every one of us are tonight. He knows who you are, he knows where you are, and he knows what you are. Nathaniel answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. 
And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Those who wait upon the Lord, because that's what he was doing. He was meditating under the fig tree. He was having his own private devotions under the fig tree minding his own business, but his heart was lifted up to God. And the Lord knew his name. When our hearts are lifted up to God, he watches and he sees and he knows every name of every heart that's lifted up to him. When you, in the quietness and the privacy of your own home, and you spend those moments alone with the Lord, or it may be in your car as you pull into a lay-by or whatever, at that moment, when your heart is lifted up to the Lord, that's a precious moment in heaven. God sees that, and He notes that. And He knows every name of every heart that's lifted up to Him. Saul of Tarsus. God knew who Saul was. He knew where Saul was. And he knew what Saul was. And Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a hardliner with a hard heart. Hated Christians with a passion went to the chief priests, got letters to go to the synagogues in Damascus to hound them and to imprison them and to bring them back in bonds because he had been doing that around Jerusalem and he wanted to extend that as far and anywhere Christians he could find. And he was passionate about it. But on that road to Damascus, <laughs> he met the Lord, didn't he? And what did the Lord say? Saul, Saul. He knew his name, didn't he? And he mentioned him by name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't have to say anything else. That hardened Pharisee heart melted. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, and me persecuting. Ah. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Remember, I told you before the goads was the goad was the thing the farmer used, the pole with a pointy end to jab the old beasts as they were plowing the furrows, and they would kick at them and kick at them. They keep jabbing them to keep them at it. So that lets us know that along the way, even though he was hard, and even though he was with a passion going out to imprison Christians, but somehow or other, God was starting to get through to him, and he was kicking against it. And we kick against conviction, don't we? Most of us, before we ever get saved, had a period of conviction in our hearts, and we fought against it, most of us. 
I think that happened at the martyrdom of Stephen. Because he was there. He was the chief witness. His coat was laid at his feet. And he watched that young man giving his life for Jesus. And he heard him pray that prayer, Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. And perhaps watched him as he preached, as his face shone like an angel. And as he said, I looked up, I see the heavens open, I see the Son of Man standing in the right hand of God. There was something in around that time struck a chord. And he kept it secret. And he tried to go on as before. But there was something in the heart that was disturbing. And I think that's why when Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Lord, is that you? Just saying his name and saying it twice. When God speaks the name twice, there's an urgency. There's a relevance. Abraham, Abraham. Samuel, Samuel. Simon, Simon. Saul, Saul. Perhaps you have got family member, a work colleague, school chum, a mate, and perhaps right now they're under conviction and they're kicking against it. And it seems to be they're going harder against God and the things of God than ever before, but maybe they're kicking against it. God knows who they are, where they are, and what they are. And he can reach them. He knows where to find them. He found Jonah on a ship bound for Tarshish. Can I just, as an aside, can I just say, I was watching the news yesterday. And out there, it showed you the, the Kurdish soldiers fighter with the Americans on their side and how they secured that dam from the IS, from those Muslim terrorists. And the, the news reporter was standing up, up this mountain, and he says, I'm looking over, it was out of the valley of the plain of Nineveh. Nineveh. Mosul is ancient Nineveh. And I thought when he said that, I thought, I wonder was that the spot where Jonah parked himself and looked over at the Ninevites and wished that God would destroy them, the reluctant preacher. It's interesting how these biblical terms are all coming back today, the Syria and the Egypt and Israel and all that Middle Eastern country. It's just all bubbling up again. He knew where to find Jonah on that ship going to Tarshish. He knew where to find Elijah in Beersheba, wide out in the desert in the wilderness of sin, under that juniper tree. He knew where to find Saul as he hid among the stuff. He knew where to find Stephen and Philip in the soup kitchen. They were destined for greater things, but they started in the soup kitchen, and God knew who they were and where they were and what they were. He knew where to find Hagar at that spring in the wilderness and Ishmael under a bush. And he knows every backslider. Every soul 
that's under conviction. Everyone that seems to be going on a downward path, going in a a direction away from God, he knows every single one of them. Psalmist in Psalm 139 and Jeremiah in the first chapter of his book and Isaiah chapter 48, Psalmist and the prophets all agreed that God knew us and had a plan for us and had a purpose for life even before we were born. Apostle Paul believed that. Galatians 1.15 he says, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me. You know, he never really understood that until that experience on the Damascus Road. Only then was he able to fully understand this is God's destiny for my life. He has called me to preach the gospel of his dear son. The one that he fought against. The one that he killed the believers. And yet, when Christ met him that day, suddenly everything began to change. He began to realize what he had been called to do. In Acts 13 and 2, the Holy Spirit said at that prayer meeting, Now separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. There came that moment whenever they were praying and asking God for direction. And those men had gathered around and suddenly the Holy Spirit spoke. And he mentioned two names, Barnabas and Saul. Separate them for the work. So God knows our name, and he knows how to call us, and he knows how to separate us, and he knows what he wants us to do. And from time to time, he speaks her name. I don't mean loudly as a physical voice, but he speaks to us in our hearts, and we know he's speaking to us. He knows each of us by name. In John chapter 11, the body of Lazarus is lying in its humiliation and all of its corruption in the tomb. Four days. Decomposition is setting in. By this time, he stinks. The sister said to Jesus. When Jesus asked to roll away the stone, by this time he stinks. Perhaps she thought he was going to review the remains, <laughs> but he wasn't. So Jesus, after deliberately delaying to go to Bethany, which they couldn't understand. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. They both said that. Couldn't understand why Jesus would not come immediately. It wasn't far to come. He could have came right away. You know, and this is, this is still the old chestnut, particularly with unbelievers, especially with the unbelievers. 
you know, if God's so good, why didn't he, why didn't he interject? Why didn't he stop that happening? I mean, if he's all-powerful, surely he could, and, and he is all-powerful, and he doesn't, well, then he can't be good. That's the old argument, isn't it? But Jesus had a better plan. He was going to show his resurrection power in a way that they had never, ever experienced. This wasn't just the little girl who had just died. It wasn't even the young man on the beer who was just about to get buried that day. Four days in the tomb, by this time he stinks. This is beyond anything. And so Jesus, you know the story well, we don't even have to turn to it. Jesus said, do you not believe me? Do you not believe that I'm the resurrection? Hmm? I mean, he had told them, but they just couldn't get it. And we would have been no different if we had been standing there either. So he said, roll away the stone. So they rolled away the stone. Jesus had done his praying before he got there. He knew what the Father's will was. But he spoke to his Father in front of them all so that they would know too. What must it have been like to be there? To be standing at that open grave. And Jesus standing there. What's he going to do? Because at that moment they didn't know. And he has been crying. He's been weeping. And when it says Jesus wept, I mean it really, he, he copiously wept. He, his shoulders would be shuddering. That wasn't like the weeping the others were doing. There was professional wailers there. But when he saw what death was doing and the hurt and the pain and the harm, these were his dear friends. This was the home that he loved to visit and, and sit with and eat with and share with. He felt totally comfortable in that home in Bethany, that little house. These were some of the closest friends on earth he had. So when he saw their pain and their hurt and what death is, he wept. Wept with them, wept for them. But somebody says he also wept because he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead to come back into this life to die all over again at some point. Be that as it may. So he stands there. Where's Lazarus? He's in paradise. Spirit. He's probably met Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Would you want to come back? Don't think so. <laughs> and suddenly, Jesus, in a loud voice, shouts, Lazarus! And Lazarus, in paradise, heard his name being called. And he had no other option he had no other choice. Mm -hmm. He had to come. He had to respond. And in that moment, his spirit, his soul, came back to his body.
and he walked out of that grave with those grave clothes still on, shuffled out of the grave. What a moment that must have been. I mean, that's hairs in the back of your neck standing up stuff, isn't it? But he spoke his name. He didn't have to speak his name, but he spoke his name. Some wag says, well, if he hadn't if he, if he hadn't spoke Lazarus' name, everybody in the graves would have got up. But he spoke his name. And he had to respond. He had to respond. You know, it could be, I don't know, but it could be that somebody may be in a grave, spiritually speaking feeling dead on the inside. But Jesus knows your name. And he calls you forth into newness of life. From death to life. This is our Savior tonight. This is our Lord. What do we like for time? Just a couple more minutes. I, I love this. I love this next story. John chapter 20. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that was John, said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Who was the they? Well, she must have assumed that it was somebody but she had no idea Somebody did it. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were, going to, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloth lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloth lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went and also, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went away to their own homes. But Mary stood outside the, by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now here's a woman who is heartbroken, devastated beyond words. The one that she loved above all people on earth had died a cruel and wicked death and had been laid in that tomb. 
And she came to pay her respects and to help to add dressing to the body and so forth. But to her amazement and to her anguish and grief, somebody had taken his body. What a moment for her. What a heartbreaking moment she was facing. So she said to them, They have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. It was still dark, just about breaking light. Perhaps in her salt tears, perhaps in her deep grief, you know, anybody that has gone through deep grief, and some of you have recently, it's hard to think straight, isn't it? You're, you're just an emotional rack, aren't you? And that's what she was. So she turned around. She looked at Jesus. She didn't even recognize him. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Same thing as the angel said. But then he added, Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Wow, think of that. Here is a love that was willing, if necessary, to carry the dead body of a man laden with a hundred pounds of spices by herself, if necessary. She so passionately loved Jesus. Then Jesus said to her, Mary, just one word, her name. Nobody but nobody could speak her name like Jesus. It was so precious to her. There was something about the way Jesus said her name that she instantly at that moment recognized. It could be nobody else but Jesus. And she turned and said, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher or master. Jesus said, Mary. She said, Master. <laughs> what a moment. What a moment. And in that instant, he spoke her name. He knew that would do the trick. He knew the moment he would speak her name, her life would change forever. And he just spoke her name. And suddenly, the lights went on. And the joy came back. And the excitement and the thrill of knowing immediately it's the master. Because nobody else speaks my name like that. What am I trying to say tonight? What am I trying to do? I'm trying to help you to understand that he knows who we are. He knows where we are. He knows what we are at any given moment. 
and he can speak our name. The Bible says he calls the stars by name. He likes to name things. There are untold billions and billions and countless billions of stars and he named every one of them. Something very personal about our name, isn't there? Some of you have got pet names. Some of you have got nicknames. Do you know that very few people ever call me by my proper name? It's a Northern Ireland thing. My name is David. Everybody calls me David. Not that it bothers me at all, the slightest. Because <laughs> Sally does it. <laughs> it can't bother me. Whether it's David or David. Or Davy. You know your name. And it means something to you, doesn't it? You were given it by your parents. previous church that Sally and I attended there's a wee couple in it and they had lots of kids she was a baby factory I mean just she had a child on Friday and she was singing in a choir on Sunday just like shell and peas <laughs> she had this wee child and this is true she decided because I don't know if they still do this now, but they, come, they used to come around the hospital and ask you to, you know, to get the birth certificate, not to sign your, you know, to get the name of the child. So they asked her, what would you like your child to be? Because she's Naomi. She says, that's okay, we'll get your husband to sign that later. So they asked him about the name. Of, no, they didn't ask her. That, they asked him, that was it. They asked him. She said to him, they're calling this child Naomi. So when it came to him, they asked him, what are you going to call the child? He couldn't spell Naomi, so he says Ruth. <laughs> he could spell Ruth, so Ruth she got. <laughs> so name, do you know I have, a, I have a middle name? Do you know that? Some of you know that, most of you don't. But it's not a double barrel name, it's just a middle name that I rarely ever use, except on official things. I'm not going to tell you what it is, in case you joke me about it. Names are important. They were important in the Bible days. They're important to us today. But they're important to God. And he absolutely knows your name. Little Samuel, tendant to Eli the priest. He's lying in his bed. His duties are over for the day. The voice comes, Samuel. He hears it. He thought, it's the old man next door. So he goes into Eli. You called me, here I am. He says, no, I didn't call you. Get back to bed. Drifts to sleep again. Samuel. It's definitely the old man. So he goes back in again. Eli, you called me, here I am. What do you want? I didn't call you, son. And then Eli recognized it must be the Lord. So he says, go in again. And when you hear your name again, say, Speak, Lord, your servant 
hears. Third time, Samuel, speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. Just a little boy. Isn't that amazing? That God, the Bible says that he did not yet know the Lord and did not yet know the voice of the Lord. He thought it was the voice of man that was speaking, but it was the voice of the Lord. And the trouble is with us, in our spiritual immaturity sometimes, if the Lord is speaking, we think it's the voice of man. And if the voice of man is speaking, sometimes we think it's the voice of the Lord. And he thought it was the voice of man because he didn't know. But now he knows. And that little young boy, God gave him a message. He said that the ears of all Israel will tingle when they hear it. And it was such a powerful message. And it was against the household of Eli. And the next day he got up. The old man said, son, what did the Lord say? And he, was, he, he didn't want to say. He didn't want to hurt him. He's a bit frightened to say. He says, well, the Lord do to you and more also if you don't tell me. Well, that got his attention. So he told him. And from that moment, that little boy who heard the voice of God became one of the greatest prophets in Israel. And the Bible says not one of his words fell to the ground. It all started when he was just a child. God can speak to a child. He can. And he knows every one of their names. So let's never underestimate that our God can speak to a child if necessary. He did with little Samuel. Abraham has gone up Mount Moriah. He's got his sticks for the fire. He's got his knife to sacrifice his son. The two young attendants, he said, you stay here as we go up the mountain. We'll come back to you. I and the boy will come back to you. Because Hebrews 11 says he believed by faith that God would raise him from the dead. That's faith, isn't it? And so, he piles the wood up. Isaac said, Father, I see the wood for the sacrifice. I see the knife. But where is the lamb? God will provide himself the lamb, he said. He bound Isaac. He set him on the altar. He lifted the knife. And he had every intention of putting it into the heart of his own son because God had said. Even though naturally, humanly, it went against every grain and every fiber of his being and all that he believed about God, but God spoke and he recognized the voice of God. He knew God had asked him to do this. So he raised up the knife. And as he raised up the knife, ready to plunge it, the angel of the Lord said, Abraham, Abraham, twice. Again, there's an urgency. It's important. He had to really get his attention. Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham stopped. He says, now I know. You've been put to the test. But now I know you've passed the test. Your faith is true and genuine. And he looked around and there was a ram caught in a thicket. And that became the provision. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. Every one of us tonight and every one of us who's listening maybe by the CD 
or maybe by the podcast. God knows who you are. God knows where you are. God knows what you are. And he knows your name. And he can speak your name. At the darkest hour or at the greatest moment of your life, he can speak your name. And we say, speak, Lord. Your servant heareth. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you tonight that you truly are a great and mighty God. Not only are you the creator of the ends of the earth, but you take such a personal interest in us that you know our name and you speak it. So we thank you for that tonight. Thank you that you care so much for us that you would be so bothered about us that you would take the trouble to speak our name. So help us to have ears to hear what you're saying. Thank you, Lord, that your eye is always over the righteous and your ear is always open to their cry. We bless you for that. And thank you, Lord, that no matter how far a man or a woman may go into sin, Lord, you know who they are, where they are, and what they are. And you know how to bring them out of that. Thank you for this, Lord. We bless you for your word that enlightens us and encourages us, strengthens us, and we give you praise and we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. For more messages like this one, visit us online at www.mpc.org.uk. You will also find a selection of informative videos at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal.